I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're back! It's amazing how long a week away feels after going weekly. I had a great time off travelling up to Scotland for the wife's graduation, but now we're back to look at Henry's final wife, nice segue there, Catherine Parr. Before we get going though, I have a few notices. I'd like to first thank everyone who bought some merch. The mugs, tote bags and tank tops flew off the proverbial shelves, and I'm so grateful to you all. To those of you who missed out, then I hope you'll take some solace in the fact that I will be doing another merch sale before this podcast is over. I would like to particularly thank listener Crystal, who posted a picture on the Facebook page of her mug as soon as it arrived. I'd love to see all of the merch that you guys bought, and you can post that on the Facebook page. All the money raised will go into supporting me and the podcast, but of course the main way that you've all been doing that is on Patreon, where we are now up to 68 patrons. Over the last two weeks, five new members have been inducted into the most honourable society of amazingness. Molly, Gail, Janine, Jen, we'll get back to Jen, and Sarah. Thanks so much to you all, I'm so grateful. If you would also like to be inducted into this exclusive club, then it's super easy. You just need to go to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast, where you can donate as little as $1 per month. If you don't want to, or you can't afford, then no problem. This podcast will always be here for you. I'd also like to give a shout out to those of you who have been reviewing me on iTunes, where I've been so touched by some of your comments about the show. I know, humble brag alert. I was especially made to blush by an amazing review on the iTunes store by Jen Mole, who I assume is the same Jen who recently became one of my patrons, which modestly prevents me from reading. Again, thanks so much to everyone who's reviewed the show. Keep them coming. You know how vain I am. All that's left to say is to remind you about the Facebook and Twitter pages where I tend to make all my announcements during the week. Just type the name of the show into the search bar and you will find it. For all you new listeners out there, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 53, Catherine Parr, better his mistress than his wife. So, here we are the final one of Henry VIII's wives, and probably the one that has gone through the biggest change in viewpoint since I studied them at school. You see, back when I was a young whippersnapper of a lad, you know, in the 90s, Catherine Parr was basically always written off as being the nurse. The narrative being that Henry, after going through a huge midlife crisis by marrying a teenager, 
realised that he was an old, sickly man on the verge of death, and so decided to marry someone who could take care of him. And that was about it. The teacher may have mentioned that she had something to do with Henry Stein to like his daughters again, but by then I think we all had such queen fatigue that we all just wanted it all to be over. And I genuinely think that has been the case with Catherine Parr. The way that European history so often works is that it is fitted around the reigns of kings, and so when we study Henry we see all of his wives as one block to study. Catherine Parr is the sixth and final wife. By now I'm sure you're all just sick of me talking about this man, and want just to move on a bit to a different king. It doesn't help that Henry is no longer a fun man to study. He's old, he's decrepit, his legs are an ulcerous, bloated, painful, disgusting thing to behold, and he has to be winched around the palace because he's so fat. And really, that's all a shame, because Catherine Parr is truly fascinating. Here are some baseline stats to, you know, pique your interest. She was England's first Protestant queen. She is one of only two of his wives to act as regent. She is the second longest reigning of Henry's wives, one of only two to outlive him, and the second to be previously married. And thanks to her promoting the rights of Henry's daughters, she is partly responsible for bringing about the reign of Gloriana herself, Elizabeth I. Not bad for a nurse, eh? And it was twice widowed, not twice divorced, as I said at the end of the last episode. Thanks to listener Katie for emailing me to point out that little blunder. Today, however, we won't be talking about Catherine's reign at all, as she had quite the eventful life before becoming the Queen of England. Catherine Parr was born in the summer of 1512. How great is it that we know the date of birth of a queen? Her parents were Sir Thomas and Maud Parr, who were members of the country gentry from Cumbria in the northwest of England. This makes her family background rather like the Boleyns and the Seymours rather than the elite Howard clan from which Henry's last wife emerged. Thomas Parr did have royal blood, as, like it seems everyone, he could trace his maternal line back to Edward III through the Earl of Warwick, who you may remember from our Wars of the Roses days as the Kingmaker. It won't surprise you then to hear that the Parrs were Yorkists. It is thanks to Thomas's mother, though, that the family survived the change in regime after Bosworth, as, despite being a former lady-in-waiting to Anne Neville, she managed to remarry to a protégé of Henry VII's wife, Margaret Beaufort. Thanks to his stepfather's prominence at the court of Henry VII, Thomas became a popular man at court and was regarded as a very well-educated man. He held the positions of Sheriff of Northamptonshire, Master of the Wards and Comptroller, though the king did not regard him well enough to exclude him from the squeezing of the nobility that occurred during his reign. Henry loved money and loved to control his vassals by forcing them into debt. It was only his death and the cancelling of most of these debts under Henry VIII that saved Thomas from bankruptcy. He married Maud Green, a close friend and future in lady in waiting to Catherine of Aragon. She too was an unusually well educated woman for her time. She was a wealthy heiress too, that of course is what attracted Thomas to her, but their shared love of learning would be passed on to their children. Speaking of which, they had five together, three of whom made it out of infancy. Catherine was the eldest, but there was also William, who I mentioned a couple of weeks ago because he had an affair with one of Catherine Howard's ladies in waiting and Anne, who has the rather amazing distinction of having been a lady-in-waiting to all six of Henry's wives. Really quite something. Because of her parents' commitments at court, Catherine would have probably seen little of them in her early years, and probably knew little of her father at all, who died when she was only five. This meant, of course, that her brother William inherited the family estates, but being only four, it was actually administered by stewards. Meanwhile, the job of raising the children was passed to Maud, 
who was, by all accounts, a pretty remarkable woman. She had been half her husband's age upon their marriage, and had already done all that was required of her in providing him with heirs. She then found, as of so many women in our story, that financially comfortable widowhood was the greatest vehicle a woman could want if she wants to be a lady of influence. Without a husband in charge, she was free to run her own course. She was put in charge of all her husband's lands in the south, was executor of his will, and would be the one to plan the marriages of her children. But, perhaps most importantly for our story, she also supervised her children's education. As a recipient of an unusually comprehensive education for a woman of the time herself, she was determined that her daughter should receive it too, and so she set up a school at the family home. This meant that her daughter was adept in Latin and fluent in both Italian and French. She was also highly numerate, which probably led to her becoming a great lover of chess and, rather interestingly, a coin collector. It is likely from her education that she developed two main interests that would stand her in good stead in later life as queen. One was her interest in medicine, which she developed from one of her tutors, who was a physician, and the other was in theology, which she was able to access due to her ability to read Latin and the family's extensive library. In 1525, Catherine's brother William was placed in a prominent role in the household of Henry VIII's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, the Duke of Richmond. This was a huge boon for the family, as, with Fitzroy being the only son of the king, there was a chance that he could succeed to the throne, even with his bastardy. If he did then right by his side would be William Parr. Soon after that, an advantageous marriage was found for the Parr's only son, the heiress the Earldom of Essex. Now that he had been fully set up, it was now time for the Parr's to marry off the eldest daughter. Maud Parr initially had ambitious plans for Catherine. In 1523, when she was only 11, Maud tried to set her up with the son of the delightfully named Lord Scrope. However, negotiations broke down over unreasonable demands by Lord Scrope, and so it was not until six years later that a new match was planned. Her brother's marriage meant that Maud did not have much in the way of dowry to offer, and so she had to set her sights rather lower. The man who Catherine eventually married was Edward Burrow, the son of a minor noble family in Gainsborough in Lincolnshire. We don't know a huge amount about Edward. He was a little older than Catherine, and lived under the thumb of his rather tyrannical father. Sir Thomas Burrow was a nasty piece of work. He was a major figure in the county and had some connections at court, though he was a fairly minor figure at the time of her marriage to his son. He was, though, a religious reformer, which meant that as Anne Boleyn rose, so did he. Given his very forceful hold over his household, it is likely that he would have insisted on everyone in it conform to his beliefs. Up until now, Catherine had been raised with the standard Roman Catholic beliefs, and while we don't know for sure, I think it likely that her own journey towards becoming England's first Protestant queen truly began here at Gainsborough Hall. While she did not challenge her overbearing father-in-law, it does not seem that she was cowed by him. After two years at Gainsborough, Catherine and Edward moved to a modest residence about ten miles up the road. Yet, soon after, Catherine was rocked by the death of her mother. In an age where parents and children were so often very detached, Maudpah had been a loving rock and guiding star in the lives of her children. She was in many ways the model woman that Catherine planned to emulate. She had set her children up as best she could. Now they were on their own. Eighteen months later, further tragedy struck Catherine as her husband Edward died. Her in-laws had no intention of letting her hang around, so she was basically thrown out with a fairly meagre pension to sustain her. At the age of just 21, she was, to quote one of her biographers, Susan E. James, quote, the superfluous widow of the undistinguished son of a country squire. In other words, 
things look a little bleak. Now that she has emerged as a fully-fledged adult, it is perhaps time to consider her appearance. She was, in many ways, very similar to her future husband Henry. She was good-looking, red-haired, energetic, and loved to dance, ride, and hunt. She was also apparently very proficient with the crossbow. She loved music, revels, and wearing fancy clothes and jewellery. I really could still be talking about Henry in his early reign. Over the next 12 months, we rather lose track of Catherine, a sign of her lack of significance at the time. We think she may have based herself in the northwest at Sisera Castle, near her ancestral home of Kendal. It is likely while she was there that she encountered for the first time John Neville, whose lands were fairly close by and whose family were Catherine's hosts. Neville held the title of Baron Latimer, and so I will be referring to him as Latimer, and he was also Catherine's second cousin. He was about a decade older than his bride when they married in 1534, and had already been married and widowed twice. If the name Neville sounds familiar to you, then you'd be right in thinking that he was a part of the influential Neville family, which had played such a huge part in the Wars of the Roses. He had two children from those matches, and seems to have wanted a wife primarily to act as a mother to them. The family had the stigma of insanity in them, as the mental illness affected many of its members, including Latimer's son, John. While in her first marriage she had largely been under the thumb of her father-in-law, here Catherine was able to play the role of a fairly conventional noble wife at Snape Castle. Indeed, of all of her marriages, this was her most normal. She had control of her own household, and, while she had no children with Latimer, she did raise his young children. She seems to have taken his daughter Margaret in particular under her wing. She raised her as a religious reformist and would negotiate her marriage in 1534. The great joy with Catherine Parr, as we will discover in later episodes, is that she became a published writer, pure gold for history geeks like me. In Lamentation of a Sinner, she wrote out how she believed a good and proper wife should act, and I think it's rather fair to say that this is the mantra by which she conducted her marriage to Latimer. Quote, If they are women married, they learn of St. Paul to be obedient to their husbands, and to keep silence in the congregation, and to learn of their husbands at home. Also, they wear such apparel as becometh holiness and comely usage with soberness, not being accusers or detractors, not given too much eating or delicate meats and drinking of wine. But they teach honest things, to make the young women sober-minded, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, housewifely, good and obedient unto their husbands, and that the word of God be not evil spoken of. This focus on being an obedient Christian wife was clearly important to Catherine. While it would perhaps be a stretch to say that she loved her husband in a romantic way, she clearly held affection for him and seems to have enjoyed her time in North Yorkshire. He was definitely a step up both in terms of quality of life and noble status to Edward Burrow. But she did differ from her husband in one important respect. While she was a reformist, Latimer was a staunch follower of the old faith. This would bring him into conflict with the king in the most dangerous rebellion of his reign. The year is 1536. Anne Boleyn has just been executed, and Jane Seymour was queen. More importantly though for this part of the story, Henry and Cromwell were ruthlessly pursuing a policy of suppressing the establishments of the old faith. Religious houses were being ransacked and sold off for huge profits. This set off a chain of events that led to a series of uprisings that are known to history as the rather quixotic-sounding Pilgrimage of Grace. You may remember me talking about it in my series on Jane Seymour. 
The epicentre of the revolt was initially in Lincolnshire, but their anger was not directed at the king so much as it was against his ministers, most especially Cromwell. This meant that they lingered in the county, waiting for Henry's response rather than marching south. This lack of action meant that the whole thing began to fizzle out. However, this revolt sparked a sister uprising in Yorkshire, a far more conservative region led by Robert Ask. This revolt spread and eventually took York, the county's main city, and it's actually here that the whole thing gains the name Pilgrimage of Grace, as Ask claimed that this was a religious crusade in support of traditional Catholicism. After this, the rebels headed further north, towards Snape Castle. One of their key aims was to appropriate the local nobility to their cause, by force if necessary. When they showed up at Latimer and Catherine's doorstep, they surrounded the castle and gave him an ultimatum. Join us, or we will burn your home to the ground. Latimer was left with no choice, though he likely did have sympathy with the rebel cause. Given the risks involved, he likely would not have joined the rebellion at such an early stage given the choice, though. Supporting the rebellion was treason. His life would be forfeit should the endeavour fail. That all said, he did become one of their most important leaders, and was instrumental in organising them into an effective fighting force of around 35,000 men. Now, of course, Catherine Parr did not support the rebel cause at all, and it did not help that the force dispatched by the king to put down the rebellion contained both her uncle and her brother. While there was no real confrontation, the size of the royal army intimidated the rebel leaders. In early December, a general amnesty was offered by the king if all the rebels went home, which was accepted. This would have been a great relief for Catherine, who had suffered a very uncertain few months alone at Snape Castle with her stepchildren. Her reunion with her husband, though, was short-lived, as he had to rush down south to explain himself to the king. Neither Henry nor Cromwell were sympathetic to the cause of a man who had given in to rebel threats so easily, but luckily for Latimer, he had powerful friends at court. These were both his own kinsmen, but also his wife's family. It's not an exaggeration to say that if he had not married a pa, it is unlikely that he would have escaped execution. The danger, though, was not yet over, as a mob, hearing that Latimer had gone south to talk to the hated king, gathered outside Snape Castle, where Catherine and the children were still lodged. Only Latimer racing back up north pacified a situation which could have turned very ugly. Further uprisings in Yorkshire continued to break out in the early months of 1537, which Latimer took no part in. These were crushed, and Henry, tiring of all these rebellions, went back on his promised mercy and came down hard on the rebel leaders, many of whom were sentenced to death. Latimer escaped this round of persecution, but for how long? For the next few months, Catherine stayed at Snape Castle while Latimer was with the Duke of Norfolk. Now, we all remember the Duke of Norfolk from the last few episodes. He was about as duplicitous a friend as you could want, promising to help Latimer while doing nothing that might even slightly endanger his own skin. Having heard that Latimer was still in Henry's bad books, he sent him down south to plead his case anyway. On his arrival, Latimer was arrested and sent to the Tower. Through the summer of that year, he was repeatedly questioned, but he maintained the story that he had only ever acted under duress. Eventually, thanks to the politicking of both his allies and Catherine's, not to mention a hefty bribe to Cromwell, he was released in early September on the basis that he leave the North. For Catherine, after being isolated and threatened by rebel and royal forces alike for months, this must have been a great relief, not least because their new home in Worcestershire was close to many of her family, including cousins, aunts and uncles. For the next five years, they moved around the country, as Latimer's duties demanded. After the fall of Cromwell in 1540, Latimer's position at court improved, 
which meant that he and Catherine began to spend more and more time in London. On arrival there, Catherine sought out her brother William, who had recently been elevated to the peerage and was now Lord Parr. His marriage had completely fallen apart. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And the two were now living separately. This had not been the future planned out for William, as this meant he would not inherit the title of Earl of Essex, which went to Cromwell shortly before his fall. London must have been a joy for the educated and refined Catherine Parr. A city of culture and intellectual discussion, it had been her home for some time in her childhood, and she must have been overjoyed to be back. Her marriage, though, continued to be a long-distance affair, as Latimer was sent north to command troops on the Anglo-Scottish border during one of the best-named events in English history, the rough wooing. Latimer's health had never been great, and the strain of these few years took its toll. He seems to have been particularly affected by this when he was away from Catherine, which proves that the image of her as a nurse is a fairly accurate one, if a little one-dimensional. Eventually, in the early spring of 1543, Lord Latimer, Catherine's second husband, died in London. Catherine had knowledge of both sides of widowhood. Her own first experience had been a pretty miserable one, isolated and fairly alone in someone else's house. Yet her mother had found considerable liberation in widowhood, as she had financial independence away from the orders of the man. Due to Catherine's husband's long illness, she'd had a little time to get things prepared. Latimer's will was relatively generous, granting her custody of his daughter and the income from two manors. This didn't exactly leave her swimming in cash, but it left her comfortably well enough to be able to be the guiding light of her own future, particularly those close to the crown. Her mother had been a close friend of Catherine of Aragon, and so she used this connection to become close to Princess Mary. 
You may remember that Mary had been forced to capitulate to her father back during Jane Seymour's queenship. And while this had been a personal humiliation, as she was forced to essentially admit she was a bastard, it did lead to her re-entry into courtly life and an increase in the size of her household. It was then further expanded after the execution of Catherine Howard, as, since there was no longer a queen, Mary became her father's companion at court, essentially filling the public role of queen. This meant that there was a spot for Catherine, which was readily offered and gladly accepted. Okay, so we are now in the spring of 1543. Henry had executed wife number five a year before, but Catherine's eyes were not on the newly single monarch, but on someone who was still one of the most powerful men in the land. Indeed, it's someone who we've already briefly met, though it was a few episodes ago, and it is a name that you will definitely need to remember. Thomas Seymour. Thomas was the Seymour's second son, a little older than Jane. When she became queen, Thomas did not get a big fancy title like his elder brother Edward, but he was appointed to the king's privy chamber and was knighted. Henry took a shine to Thomas, and even after his sister's death, he continued to rise up the greasy pole, quickly becoming one of the king's intimates. He was one of the ambassadors that greeted Anne of Cleves at Calais, and then was sent to Germany to become the ambassador to the King of the Romans, a post that he held for three years, returning at the beginning of 1543. In terms of a marriage prospect, Thomas Seymour was not a financially a great candidate, as his brother would inherit the family wealth, but in terms of influence, he was a superstar, as he was the brother-in-law of the current king, and uncle to the future king. He had already been linked with the daughter of the Duke of Norfolk, but that didn't really go anywhere. Thomas and his sister shared parents and a surname, but in terms of their personalities, they were poles apart. This is how one of Catherine's biographers, Susan E. James, describes the siblings. Quote, Where she was quiet, pale and plain, he was reckless, dark and handsome. She collected dolls, he collected people. Ambitious, greedy, thoughtless, sexually aggressive, charismatic and wildly popular with women. So basically, James here is describing him as the prototypical Tudor bad boy. We don't know if Thomas and Catherine knew each other before 1543, but we do know that they hit it off immediately once Catherine entered Mary's service. Thomas had the looks to match his influence, and he in turn appears to have been attracted to Catherine's beauty and intelligence. They shared a number of mutual interests, most particularly religious reform, and they entered an adorable courtship, which belies his rather fearsome reputation. Some have claimed that this was the first time that Catherine had ever truly been in love, and this could well be true. It seemed that the couple were destined for marriage. But there was a problem. A big fat problem. A problem so big that its waistband now measured over 50 inches. No, it wasn't your mum. It was the king. So the last time that we met Henry was about a year and a half ago, when he executed Catherine Howard. Now, much like after the unexpected death of Jane Seymour, this time he did not have another woman lined up to be queen. And one imagines that, for once, women were not champing at the bit to become Henry's wife. According to our old friend, Eustace Chapuis, quote, There are few, if any, ladies at court nowadays likely to aspire to the honour of becoming one of the king's wives, or to desire that the choice should fall on them. It's interesting to ask why Henry should seek to marry again. In the case of his last wife, it had been partly for the sake of wanting to secure the succession, but I think it's fair to say that looks and charm were the main reason. The succession was still not as secure as Henry would have liked it, you always want a spare to go with your heir, but equally I think that there was less of a desperation on Henry's part than there had been before. He wanted to remarry, and he wanted to try to have more children, of that there can be no doubt, but it just wasn't the overwhelming priority. 
Now, historians back in the day, those who espoused the Catherine Parr nurse extraordinaire view, see that all Henry wanted was for a buxom nurse to take care of him as he whiled away his final years. That is simplistic baloney, if you'll pardon my French. He still planned to sleep with his new wife, and indeed would do so. But equally, those who say that the succession was still at the top of his list of priorities ignore that Catherine was a terrible candidate for a wife if progeny is your goal. For a start, she was 31, which for the time was a little past her peak. Women did give birth in their 30s in this period, but it was far better to do so when a little younger. The bigger problem, though, was not her age, but, if you'll forgive the horse racing comparison, it was her form. Catherine had spent 13 years of her life, almost all of her peak childbearing years, married to two different men. There is no doubt that both her marriages were consummated, and neither husband was especially old. Therefore, the fact that she was still childless after all that shows that she wasn't exactly likely to start churning out sons now. Indeed, Anne of Cleves, who you may remember at this time was pressing her case for remarriage with Henry, rather rudely drew attention to the point when she said that Catherine, quote, gives no hope whatever of posterity to the king. Henry had, though, learned his lesson from Catherine Howard. He didn't want to chase after a very young wives anymore. He wanted a more mature lady. According to the Chronicle of Henry VIII, he told his council, quote, Gentlemen, I desire company, but I have had more than enough of taking young wives, and I am now resolved to marry a widow. Henry's courtship of Catherine Parr is shrouded in mystery. There are no erotic letters or surreptitious love notes being passed about. None of that business this time. So, here's what we do know. While it is possible that he had met Catherine while she was a girl in the early years of his reign, he would have first met Catherine, the woman, in 1540. But of course now in 1543, she was a single lady. Her position in the household of Princess Mary meant that they would have been in regular contact, and it seems that Henry was rather attracted to her. Many at the time have cast aspersions on Catherine's beauty, and it was probably true that she was not the looker that, say, Catherine Howard had been. However, Henry was not one who usually fell for the hottest girl. He fell for the clever girl. One who could hold an intelligent conversation. One who could challenge him, though not, of course, too much. Someone who could be his equal when he needed it, and was clever enough to defer and submit when he wanted it. Henry was not exactly what you would call a subtle person, and he made it quite clear that he was interested in Catherine. He bought her fancy gifts, and found many an excuse to go visit his daughter, when really it was Catherine whom he wanted to see. But he could not help but notice that Catherine's eyes were not for him, but for Thomas Seymour. But, of course, being the king comes with many perks, and one such perk was the ability to make people go away. Not in a mafia-style way, no no. Henry arranged for Seymour to be made ambassador to the Netherlands. To be fair, this was not a bad appointment at all. He was a respected diplomat, and there was a lot of tension on the continent at this point. Like basically always in this period, there was a war going on in Italy, between France and the Empire, and England had gotten sucked in as an imperial ally against Francis I and the Ottomans. It's all super complicated and rather tangential to the story. Look up the Italian War of 1542-46 to if you're interested. But basically, England was meant to keep Francis busy in northern France, while Charles took him on in Italy. Seymour would end up leading troops in battle in this war. So now he could add war hero to a list of things making him the hottest bachelor in the kingdom. But the only thing that's really important for our story at this point is that Thomas is now out of the picture. Henry was now looking to waddle into his territory and make Seymour's girlfriend the Queen of England. 
Okay, so these are the reasons why Henry wants to make Catherine his wife and the steps they took to make it happen. But theoretically, of course, she could have said no. Why didn't she? Well, there are three reasons. The first is gain. We have talked a lot about how marriage in this period was principally for gain. Usually we framed it in terms of gain for the king and the kingdom. But of course, in marriages to English noblewomen, it was often the bride's family that were the principal beneficiaries. Look at how well the Woodvilles, Boleyns, Seymours and Howards had done while one of their own sat next to Henry as his queen. The Parrs were no exception to this. Her brother William Parr in particular stood to benefit greatly. Indeed, Catherine rather bitterly sniped at him that he was, quote, the person who has most cause to rejoice. While this was a factor, though, it wasn't a major concern for Catherine. Tying into this, though, is the second reason, that of potential influence that she could bring, most especially religious reform. In a letter that she would write years later to Thomas Seymour, she said the following, quote, God withstood my will therein most vehemently for a time, and through his grace made that possible which seemed to me impossible, that was, made me renounce utterly my own will and follow his most willingly. Basically, she is saying here that she renounced her love for Seymour and married the king to do God's work, and moreover that it was God's will that she should do so. Now this could all rather be justification after the fact, but there is no doubt that Catherine would go on to use her position as queen to promote religious reform, so we mustn't underestimate this influence on her decision. But, having said all that, the main reason was that the king willed it, and once the king willed something, particularly this king, and especially this king at this stage in his reign, you didn't say no. It's not like she didn't try. Indeed, Catherine took the complete opposite path to Anne Boleyn. Anne had rejected Henry's request that she become his mistress because she harboured ambitions to be queen. Catherine tried to reject Henry's demand that she become his queen by reportedly saying, quote, Better to be his mistress than his wife. But Henry would have none of it and he asked again, seemingly believing that it was mere modesty that prevented Catherine from saying yes, which, of course, she did. The pressures of family, religion, and duty were just too strong. And so she turned away from the man she loved to marry the man who ruled. Henry had not had many big weddings. Indeed, the majority were small private affairs, or in the case of Anne Boleyn, in secret. This one, though, was to have a different, more family flavour. Prominent in the bridal party were Catherine's sister Anne and her two soon-to-be stepdaughters Mary and Elizabeth. Also in attendance were Henry's intimates and extended family, as well as family friends of Catherine. It was, though, forced to take place in a bit of a hurry, for reasons that I'll go into next week, so it needed to take place without the reading of bans. Thus, a dispensation was required from the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, which was included in the marriage licence, which, I'm delighted to say, survives, and I will quote some of it. Quote, since by your most excellent royal majesty it has been considered worthy to lead into matrimony the noble and distinguished woman, Lady Catherine Latimer, lately the wife of the distinguished and powerful man, Lord Latimer, during his natural life now deceased, she being favoured by the most good and most great God, and by your initiatives. I read this to you partly because I haven't got to read something like this in a while, but also to note the status of the soon-to-be queen. Usually in proclamations of marriage, there is a great to-do made about the lineage and status of both parties. Here, though, Cranmer doesn't have much to work with, as Catherine is not from a great family, nor from a great foreign kingdom. Therefore, he is forced to repeat how distinguished and noble she and her late husband were, and by doing so only draws attention to it. Methink the Archbishop doth protest too much. 
The wedding itself took place on the 12th of July, 1543, at Hampton Court Palace. And joy of joys, we actually have a lengthy description of what actually took place on that day, as there survives in the National Archives the notorial instrument, basically the official record of the marriage, written by the King's chief clerk. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, as we'd be here for ages, but I will read a good portion. Please note just how very similar this ceremony is in many ways to a modern Catholic church wedding. It was presided over by Stephen Gardner, the Bishop of Winchester, who first said, quote, We persons assemble here for honouring, in the presence of God and his angels and all saints, the joining together of two bodies, namely that of the most illustrious prince, our Lord Henry VIII, king by grace of God, and that of the most serene woman, Lady Catherine, so that, from other, they may be made one body in the faith and love of God, and that their souls, at the same time, may be advanced by the Lord to eternal life. He then asked if anyone knew of any, quote, lawful impediment to exist between the most distinguished persons, that they may not be able to be joined together in lawful matrimony, and may not prosper thereafter in continuing therein. Let it be now openly and frankly declared and shown. Given how many of his marriages have been annulled on the basis of some lawful, or not as the case may be, impediment, this part may have been more nervously charged than in most weddings. After no one did answer, then some more admin was carried out, and then there came the vows. Quote, most illustrious lord, our King Henry, will you have this woman, most serene of aspect, the said Lady Catherine, for your wife and spouse, and love and honour her as a spouse and a husband ought to love and honour his wife, and put away all other women besides her, and cleave to her alone, as long as you both shall live? One imagines some concealed sniggering at the putting away of all other women bit, I also love the phrase, cleave to her alone. Kind of wish I'd put that in my vows. Back to Henry's marriage, though. He, quote, with a joyful countenance, answered affirmatively, yay. Then the aforementioned Reverend Father asked the said Lady Catherine both questions, if she would have the said most illustrious Lord our King Henry for her spouse and husband, and if she would obey him and serve him in sickness and in health, care for him and bind herself to be used as a spouse and wife to obey, serve, and sustain her spouse and husband, and to forsake and put aside all men besides him, and cleave to him only, as long as they both shall live. To him, the most serene Lady Catherine then returned her word, yes, she was willing to do this. Please note how unequal those vows were. Henry only had to promise to respect her and be faithful to her. Catherine agrees not only to obey and serve him, but also to, quote, sustain him, whatever that means. But this isn't the end of the vows. Oh no. Now the couple joined their right hands together, and Gardner directed Henry to say the following. Quote, I, Henry, take thee, Catherine, to my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part, and thereto I plead unto thee my troth. So a few more promises there, but of course Catherine was forced to go that bit further in her vows. She starts off with the same, to have, to hold, better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness and stuff, but then she is forced to add, quote, to be bonaire and buxom in bed and at board, till death us do part, and thereunto I place unto thee my troth. Catherine here is promising to be gentle, courteous, happy, obedient and compliant to Henry. He makes no such promise. Finally, we have the giving of rings, or in this case, ring. Quote, our King Henry displayed the gold ring, which was blessed by the said Lord Bishop. 
Henry then took Catherine's right hand, yes, right hand, and said the following, quote, With this ring I thee wed, and with thy body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee honour. And putting the wedding ring first on the said Lady Catherine's thumb, he said the following words, In the name of the father, he spoke, moving the ring to her index finger, and of the son, he in turn, now touching the middle finger, and of the Holy Spirit, in this manner also the man out the ring. In this manner, also the man out the ring on her fourth finger, and releasing the same, he said, Amen. And with that, England had a new queen, and Henry had a sixth wife. She may not have been wild about it, indeed she was certainly Henry's most reluctant wife, but now was the most powerful woman in the kingdom. Next week, we will see that she was not afraid to test the boundaries of the limited power that she held, and how she came perilously close to following her predecessors into wreck and ruin. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.